have a really prescribed formula how you ask for an arm. You just go up to someone and say, do you want to arm with me? It's like, do you want to have a cup of tea with me? Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Today I'm talking to German New Zealander Anke Richter. She's a journalist with a lot of experience in cults. She's written the book Cult Trip Inside the World of Coercion and Control. And she has a specific or a particular interest in sex cults. I guess all cults or a lot of cults are uh, pretty obsessed with sex either by you know making their rules around sex or taking advantage of people in the cult or through abstinence and, and things like that where they um, demonize sex but either way sex tends to be right at the forefront of cultishness um, and she sort of went a bit too far in many respects anchor she's an interesting case because she sort of enjoys some of the cultish stuff herself she doesn't always talk about exactly you know all the ins and outs of her own beliefs and thoughts because she's a journalist and she wants to talk about the cults themselves but I definitely get the impression there's a lot of enjoyment that she took from being involved in One Taste for example uh, which was the big one on Netflix recently the orgasmic meditation or OM as they call it and another cult called Centerpoint so we'll spend the first half an hour talking about One Taste then she'll move on to uh, Centerpoint and we'll have a little, little debate about cults in general do get her book Cult Trip Inside the World of Coercion and Control. It will be in the show notes. Uh, support this show on patreon.com slash Andrew Gold and give me a little review on Apple Podcasts. That's really helpful when you do that. Big episodes are coming up as always, but now you're on the edge of sex cults with Anke Richter. I'm going to welcome journalist Anke Richter on, on the Edge with Andrew Gold podcast today. Anke has been looking into cults. She's written a book called Cult Trip Inside the World of Coercion and Control. And we're going to discuss how she came too close to a sex cult. And we'll also be talking about how cults are in many respects a feminist issue. And we're going to get into the where's and the why's and the how's. But firstly, Anke, I want to go straight into your experience with uh, with cults and, and being too close and what led you... Well, I guess we'll start with what led you to writing this book. I fell into cult journalism by accident and by attending a New Age festival in Byron Bay in Australia because I had an assignment, not undercover, but I was going to write it under pseudonym to check out this neo tantra scene. And I was actually hooked in. I loved it. And so it became my own journey for a few years. And at that festival, I met a woman who, well, she called herself the, the commune concubine. She'd been a teenager at a former sex cult in New Zealand called Centerpoint that operated um, in the 80s and 90s until they were busted big time for taking drugs and manufacturing them with teenagers in group experiments and also for the um, sexual abuse of children on a big scale. So it was a massive scandal back in New Zealand, but I hadn't even lived there then. I'd only immigrated to New Zealand 20 years ago when their, around the time when their guru died. Um, and then I met Angie from this couch and she told me her story and I thought this is a book, but that's not the whole story. As you know, it was just the beginning of something more darker and more difficult. Yeah. 
And it's fascinating. And you're my favorite kind of journalist because it's like gonzo journalism. You know, you get in really involved in the subject. And those are the kinds of things that I really like reading, seeing the journalists get involved and go a little bit too far inside sometimes. One of the things that I was really fascinated about was your experience with the orgasmic meditation house one taste it was a big netflix documentary too recently so it's been in the news quite a lot um so how did you i mean you've written that you've gone undercover but i presume you have to sort of participate how did that all work well i spent a week at an om house in san francisco i don't know they exist anymore because everything there fell over um and they've dispersed but it was a it was called forest hill om house and i had a list of instructions of I know how to be discreet when I arrived there and it was pull the curtains closed and don't talk to the neighbors. I mean, that already had a bit of a culty feel. I think the Wi-Fi password was one, two, three, orgasm. It was this big, this big villa mansion with, you know, chandeliers and golden taps. And it, it was, it was weird and fascinating. And I slept in this big room that was, um, so curtain off with a, with bookshelves from the from another big hall. I know this is where we, where they were going to do the oming in the morning, but for some reason they'd had a everyone was tired and they weren't really feeling up to it. It came across almost as if it was a bit of a chore that you you'd have to do. So just to you know just to explain what oming is, it's um it stands for orgasmic meditation and it's a it's a technique to um a very precise manner to arouse a woman and focus on her most um sensitive part right um between her legs and um and that's that's taught in a very um formulaic manner and i also attended their intro course um where where they demonstrated that that to us i mean there was some good content because there always is right there is always some something where you go yeah that makes a lot of sense you know around expressing your desires and better communication and voicing your yes and no's and i was familiar with a lot of that stuff but not with you know having um a a facilitator line, you know, with eagle um, spread legs in front of me with her husband stroking her. So they have all this language about strokey and stroker and so on. And they demonstrated that. Um, and, and so that's like the, the holy grail of, 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 you know, of their, of their phys- philosophy was doing that. And it was fascinating. It was also very culty. They really were driving a hard sell at the time. So by lunchtime, you know, there were some testimonials and people were, the the women in these these very sexy black um, cocktail dresses, high heels, they were really honing in on some of the more attractive men who seemed like they had potential and money to sign up for more courses. Um, it looked to me like there were quite a few um, tech guys from Silicon Valley who maybe spent too much time in front of their screens and not enough time with dating. And they, I think they they were the perfect target group. Um, and I remember when I left that one of the the head honchos there. At the door, he looked me deep in the eyes and said, so are we your kind of people? And I thought, mm. You know, there was, there was, it was very, they were <laughs> very obviously working on you. And he was wearing a t-shirt that said, um, powered by orgasm. So it was very sleek and had this corporate look. And it's quite different from the groups that I've moved through as a journalist, but also um, privately before work, which had more of a hippie vibe and, you know, floaty sort of. Indian inspired garb and whatnot. And, and this was really different. This was, this is like a corporate sleek approach. And what else can I share from the Omhaus? Yeah, there was this guy who was a master stroker and I was really curious to hear more from him. He drove me to the event and he said he was really exhausted from all his volunteer work. And yeah, I mean, it, it, 
Only afterwards, and this was 2017, so at the time I didn't, I've done quite a bit of research around um, Centerpoint, this former sex card, but it's not like I was really up to speed with all the dynamics they make a card. And afterwards, a lot of things from one taste made a lot more sense. So I wasn't surprised really that they were investigated by the FBI later on and things fell over. And I also went to an Oming event in in Hamburg in Germany. And it's it's fascinating to see these people who all seem to have the same vibe and the same approach and especially the same language yeah so yeah that was my that was my week with one taste mm. did they did they know that you were a journalist um like no yes and no. i mean i i signed up under a different name um i did let it out on later on um i said hey you know i might actually be writing something about this can i get back in touch with you maybe fact check something was so so i did do you know, a bit of interviewing, but I don't think I gave them my real name. I just don't know. I didn't really want to be traceable straight away or in their database or whatever. Yeah. So it was a bit of both. But I think at the, at the, at the Om house, um, I think my way in was more that I've, I had, I had connections in that scene already. Not so much that I'm a journalist. So maybe that would have not gotten me in. Yeah. I was a bit of a semi, semi professional. Semi-professional cult tourist at the time, I would say, yeah. Yeah, and and that that's what I guess I'm interested in really is that, you know, to what extent did you enjoy uh, doing some of this OM stuff and, and to what extent, you know, were you uh, there just for yourself? It's a, it's a good question. Of course, it's a really personal question and one that I usually dodge a bit. But yeah, I was also on a, on a quest, I guess, as a, as a, as a middle-aged woman looking, you know, maybe for something, you know, that is is out there as a as some kind of a adventure or exploration or something that could help, you know, who who doesn't? I mean, who doesn't? Who isn't curious about these kind of things? And I think my my job gave me a permission to do these things. And I've, I mean, I've always done this. I've been to lots of places and um, you know, features I've written and you know, going with shamans into the jungle and being on a floating piece piece of ice and the in the in the in the Arctis or so, you know, my my some of my stories have always been a great excuse or a great reason to take me to places where I wouldn't normally go and then write about it. So, kind of did the same thing, and this is the new adventure for me. I've I've travelled so much. I've moved countries. I lived on a atoll in South in the South Pacific with my family as a you know as a local doctor's family, and somehow these sort of trips inwards or in, into the self exploration, which I've never really been interested in much before. They became my new, my new adventure. And so, yeah, that was, that was, I wasn't really on the bucket list to go and see arming, uh, to go and do arm and go to one taste, but they had come on the radar and I was fascinated by their new take on it all. The, the, the different, the corporate approach, the very sort of pseudoscientific hacking approach, you know, Tim Ferriss and his four hour body had promoted them. So they, they, they were. They stood for something new in this whole conscious sexuality scene, and I was fascinated to check that out and also see, yeah, what and would that work for me? And I mean, to be honest, there's nothing wrong with the technique as such, yeah. And if people do that and it helps them and opens them up, it's it's great, yeah, wonderful, go for it. Um, the problem is that you then start signing up for more and more and buy these big packages and masterclasses for whatever ten grand with. The guru Nicole Ledone on her land. I mean, she's not leading the um, organization anymore. But back then, it was all about being in her presence, sitting at her feet. So a little innocuous, maybe weird sounding technique like this genital stroking, you know, 
in itself is not bad, but then it became it becomes sort of the gateway drug into this whole organization. And yeah, there's some really bad stuff went down there um, that we now know about. Yeah. Yeah, I know that feeling definitely as a journalist. There's loads of things that I get to do where I think like, oh, I'm I'm really enjoying this, uh, hanging out with an exorcist or doing all sorts of weird things. I'm like, oh, I'm so happy I get to do this different thing. Uh, but also I'm a professional and I'm here to write about it or make a documentary about it. So tell us, um, yeah, I guess a little bit about that that founder. Because do you think often we get these these founders, they're often men, but this is a woman, of course, uh, often they, you know, they te- uh, they turn out to be psychopathic or, or narcissists, and you know, what can you tell me about her? And what's what's her name? Nicole the, Dunn. Nicole Dunn, and it? I never met her. Um, and uh, she has an interesting origin story. She claims that she was a, a, a Buddhist nun when she um, then came across this technique, which she adopted from another um, former sex cult like Lafayette Morehouse, or let's say, and 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 you know, sort of free love um, educational enterprise and commune at the time in San Francisco. But then um, there are also people who have questioned her origin story, which is always interesting because when you, when you look at those sort of at the list of what makes, a, you know, what, what's a red flag for a leader or what could potentially make a cult leader, it's usually that they have an origin story that's a little bit, um, yeah, that, that has elements like this that makes them look very spiritual and it's not always correct. So I don't know, um, but um, cle- clearly a very charismatic woman. She came on the scene with a big TED talk, um, The Hunger of Women in the Western World, I think it was called, and it really landed with a splash. And so, yeah, she specifically spoke to women. I mean, there are more women than men in cults in general, but I think with this, for this new approach, it just had such a fresh and feminist, um, cool vibe of, you know, the boss babe meets the goddess kind of vibe and um so i think she must have done something right and you know like tia swan um nicole down was always you know a bit of a you know it's it's rare to see these kind of women at the top of cuts but it's it's happening more and more and again it's i think there were also at the time you know the word cut was was being thrown around and they they did the thing that i've also you know had heard and you know someone told me was it at the osho uh, meditation resort years later when i was there oh we're the anti-cart and um one tasted the same they were sort of saying oh yeah we're 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 the cult but hey this isn't this a cool cult you know they try to again twist this word and hijack the word and yeah that's our brand you know like why don't you join the cult i mean these were probably not the exact words they used um and i want to be careful here actually i was contacted not too long ago just earlier this year by someone um, who'd read my article on them um, online and the documentary had just come out and he wanted to sort of open my eyes that maybe what, you know, the knowledge I have, the info I have is not all the info, but he could give me better info and then I would see how some of these people in the documentary or in my story have been lying. And I thought, oh, it's one of, you know, one of those, you know, the, the cult follower slash apologist who does the, you know, who does that work for their organization. And um, I actually thanked him when I wrote back said, hey, you know, I, I'm not interested in really in that information, to be honest, because I think it's pretty solid what's come out. But thank you for not attacking me because that's new. Well, it turns out he was actually, he didn't quite disclose this at first. He was actually their, um, their, their PR person or something like that, who had been the former spin doctor, I kid you not, for Harvey Weinstein. So we had a... Wow. Yeah, right? So we had a nice little... Email exchange where I pointed out to him that, you know, my job is to um, 
give victims of cartic abuse a voice and his job is to um, help those organizations to look good. So, you know, not really sure where we meet, where we meet in the middle here. <laughs> it was interesting. And also he gave me his definition of, of a cult. Where you, where you could clearly see he does not understand what cults say. He thought it's just if you, if you can't leave, it's only a cult if you can't leave. So therefore, one taste wasn't a cult for him. I thought, okay, you probably need to have educate yourself a bit more if you were their spin doctor and PR person. Just want to ask, I want to ask two questions here. What do you think they were doing that made them, you know, a, a, a cult? And, and you also mentioned that there were more women in cults in general. Why do you think that is? The first question, um, I've never done a big investigation into one test, so I can really only go by what I've what I've heard on other podcasts and documentaries in um, the the investigations that have been published. Um, it's the coercion, it's the it's the um, manipulation, it's the pushing people to do things for the organization. And as far as I know, there's been alleged sex tra- trafficking. In their case, um, and it's gone as far as yeah, violating women um, because their surrendering would be good for them. And they they teach these courses for for beastly men. You know, it's just all this the skewed, almost sort of tantric principle of the masculine, the feminine, the polarity. And as far as I know, they've taken that to an extreme. But again, um, it's not so much about the teachings and the content; it's how they do it. It's the heart style. It's the, you're either in or out, um, everyone also, you know, living together, your whole life becomes all about that, your whole social circle. I went to one of their parties, was it a barbecue or so, everyone there was, everyone there was from one taste. There wasn't anyone from the outside. So again, you know, if, if everything is just about staying in the group, doing the next level, one woman there in the arm house, she was offering massages and saving up so she could do another class. You know, if, if, if all your money, if all your focus, all your energy just goes into that organization and then also being with a leader sitting at Nicole's feet, those are all very, very culty dynamics, no doubt about it. Yeah. What was the second question again? <laughs> hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. 
To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. The second question was why there are so many uh, women in cults. You'd probably have to ask a cult expert, which I'm not, why there are so many women in cults. But I can just speak from my own experience and from my you know, little bit of research over the years. Um I think it depends on the cult as well. Some some cults probably have more, you know, men men are drawn more to them. But in general, um, maybe it's the maybe it's the emotional um, openness. It's the the wish for a better world, helping the world. Um, you know that that kind of connection seeking, um, communication, all of that. You know. In, Someone who's completely emotionally shut down and not open and just focused on making money. I mean, these are terrible masculine stereotypes I'm throwing around here, but maybe wouldn't be so susceptible or so open to going somewhere on the weekend where you talk about your feelings and you learn some teachings that can, you know, I don't know. Um, it's not that there are only women cults. There are many men in cults as well, but definitely um, I think it's also often the pull because of the male Leader could have a pull on women as well if there's a charismatic male leader that often works works for women as well. It's that father figure thing, yeah. Might be targeting, could be targeting the women as well. And I also wonder, I mean, I definitely got a sense with some of the people I spoke to, who some of the women who went into Nixium, there was a sense of being sort of housewives at 35 years old, often who were very beautiful in their 20s. Um, and then, and not always, of course, but then sort of, okay, the beauty is no longer as important. And they found themselves, because of society, not because of who they are, or because women are any less uh, interested in work and careers and things, but because of society, you have more women who maybe don't have much purpose in their mid-30s, whereas the man's out earning the money or whatever. Maybe there's some of that. I mean, we're speculating a bit, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's so much... There, there's so many good cult study projects out there right now, and I hope there's someone actually will come up with something and, and give us the answer on that. I'm I'm sure it's I'm sure it's it's being done at the moment. Um, agenda studies around cults, um, but if, you know, also if you look at at um, at MLMs, multi-level marketing, it's absolutely targeted on women, especially younger women, maybe stay-at-home mums, um, you know, who can't who who think they can now run their business from home, so. They're also a big, a big target group, and and I think MLMs definitely fall under the cult umbrella. So we have that as well. Yeah, that's true. You know, 
I had an experience the other day because I I've got like these little spots on my face that just won't go away, just like around here. And I don't know what they. I think it might be like a little bit of scarring, or I don't know what. And I went to one of these places that's like a beauty place, and it's quite like it's like an official place, you know. It's not. It doesn't seem to be culty. I don't know. And but it, I don't, I've never been to these sort of beauty places. But when I went in, and then they take me to a back room, and you have to give twenty five pounds before, even though it's supposed to be a free whatever, it's supposed to be a free, what do you call it, consultation, you have to pay £25 before in case you miss it or whatever. And then if you don't, if you choose not to buy anything, they'll refund it to you. And on the phone, you've got to give all your credit card, debit card information. So I gave that because I just thought this is like a proper business and all that stuff. Um, And then I go in and they take me to like a back room and they're just, there was something very odd it just felt really aggressive the sales it was like yeah well you've clearly got you know broken capillaries and this and that and it's like i've got these tiny little dots like what are you talking you know and then it was like so we would have to get you started on a course of lasers and blah blah and they wouldn't really tell me how much it cost and then they were very aggressive with it and then i'm getting phone calls afterwards are you going to take it up and blah 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 and eventually it put me off so much whereas if they had just said to me like here's a cream it's ten pounds, you know. I'd have bought it, um, and then I, um, you know, I was I, I emailed just today to say, can I get the twenty five pounds back because I'm not going to get, I'm Good not going to go forward with it. And it's like, okay, we're going to organise another meeting for you with this with this woman. I was like, no, 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 I don't want another meeting. I just want the twenty five pounds, please. And eventually they did, and like the owner person had to like call me and ask for my debit card information again because they don't they don't keep it or something to give the money back. And that's not even what what's going on, anchor. Yeah. I mean, next time, Andrew, I'm saying this as a doctor's wife, go and see the dermatologist, okay? Not the dodgy beauty place. What's that? So, they're so expensive just to see no, them, though. And then if I, okay, the the NHS takes, like, yeah. months. I, I, okay, no, you're absolutely right. But you know what, you, what your story just reminded me of? Again, of one taste. Because when I think it, was, it didn't take long after, like maybe an hour after I went on their website and clicked going or whatever, you know, or showed interest for the course. I think it didn't take long and actually had someone calling me from overseas, from the States. I think I was still in, yeah, I was, I was in New Zealand and they already called me from the States and, you know, wanted my credit card and I'd get a discount. I mean, wow, the sales were just straight on, full on. Yeah, trying, trying to hook you in there, get you in there, get your details. So that's never a good sign, is it? But then, you know, you, yeah, it's, they've different groups work with different levels and, and how they, you know, how they, how they grab you. Sometimes it's the, Sometimes it's just uh, the the loved up vibe and the blissful state you find yourself in, and sometimes it's it's the hard sell. But it, at some point, the sale the sale always comes in, doesn't it? Well, I wonder because I mean, you you described in in your book, you described these people at one taste. You know, it's supposed to be this big glamorous thing, and actually, they're all sort of sharing rooms, and they're not able to have like a nice life because they're desperately trying to sell more stuff and save more money because they want to get the next lessons. To learn, which is like all, a lot of cults, isn't it? And it's just quite sad. Isn't yeah, they it? were even sharing beds. Um, and I mean, rents in San Francisco are really, really high. So it was a way of how they could also have, have an inner city apartment, actually afford a bed, not even of their own room in, a, in an om house and be part of the whole, you know, game. But then they rotated in those beds. I mean, it was also deliberate. So you would be, I don't think even so much in, you know, like everyone's supposed to be sleeping with everyone. I think it's more, that you, you know, I mean, I would find that really challenging having, you know, just sleeping next to anyone I don't really know or I don't choose to, you know, share a room or a bed with. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I'm sure a lot of people would feel that way. And it, 
it's deliberate. So, you know, they told me, so all your shit comes up and, and, you know, you always then, if you have a reaction to that, if you, if you feel irritated by the snoring person next to you or how they, what they do in the morning or, you know, how close they are in your private sphere, then you can process that. And of course, then they have a process that you can learn and they can book more courses with to, to process. I actually did one of those processes in the morning with them. So there's this whole construct around. We push you into something that's confronting and brings up stuff, but then we also give you the tools that you can buy from us so you can process this stuff, you know. It's very clever. And um, a lot of people, and I'm, and I'm sure a lot of people also got a lot out of it. That's always the case. Let's not forget that, you know. These things wouldn't work if they didn't have something that makes sense at some level. And I read Nicole Dion's book and actually went, yeah, tick, tick, tick. That's, wow, that's a good take on sexuality and women's pleasure and, you know, it's, there's a lot of stuff in there that I, I, I would agree with. Yeah. So that in itself is not the problem. It's how they package it and how they push you. I saw, I, I really liked this particular sentence on Wikipedia about one taste because it, it was saying like some people describe it like this and others describe the sensation as a heady buzz mixed with equal parts wooziness and intensity of focus. And I loved, I, mean, I think that was just Wikipedia in a nutshell because I loved that it was like others describe it as this and then this really particular sentence that it couldn't possibly be more than one, you know, a heady buzz, a heady, loads of people are just saying it's a heady buzz mixed with equal parts wooziness and intensity of focus um you know, but did you did you get any of that when you were there i, I know you you you're really curious to hear how was it for me what did i feel okay i can break it down a little bit yes yeah, without without you know making without embarrassing um, myself here um embarrass yourself that's what's fascinating about it and also helped me do it um because you know i did do i did do an arm with someone in the house i actually finally asked someone and said you know can we you know oh they have a really it's a really prescribed um formula how you ask for an arm you know you just go up to someone and say do you want to arm with me it's like do you want to have a cup of tea with me okay there's no it's not fluidity it's <laughs> not a hookup it's not i mean you know what it means i mean someone's gonna you know get really close to your body very soon but it's not um it's it's so technical almost. So I so say they deliberately really um what's the word? Um they take all um sexual connotation out of it. They take all intimacy out of it. Um so when you when you start, you know, as a way how you have to lie down and how you communicate, um the the stroker looks at you and tells you exactly what he normally is, you know, a he with a she tells you what they see um, what it looks like the pink flesh or that or you know or your lips are like that or whatever your labia blah 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 very um like a very clinical super clinical it's like ooh, you look nice that, that would be a total no-no to even compliment or express that maybe that's you know it could be a turn-on so no it's like the doctor explaining you know i see a little wart here and there's a little uh -huh. hair that it, it's kind of weird. <laughs> and it also helped me because I thought, it's like at the doctor's, you know, you just lie down and someone's doing something that's supposed to help you. Or so. And then um, during the stroking, you, you always direct um, the strokey, um, no, the stroker, the strokey, would have been me, directs the stroker and gives really precise in, um, info, like a little bit stronger, a little bit more to the left. And and I guess that's a good thing because you actually, as a woman, you actually learn how to really feel what you want to, you know, identify what feels good for you in this very tiny, in this very tiny spot. And then 
express that. It's not something we normally learn. We don't learn this in, you know, in, in the, like I said, in, um, in, we don't learn that at school either. We don't learn this normally in our, in our, when we grow up in our dating lives and so on. So, you know, that's actually in itself a, can be a real positive for, for both, for men and women or, you know, stroker and strokey because you, you learn this communication and also then for the stroker to just receive that and just say thank you and not feel like they've been, um, you know, how, you know, when you're in an intimate situation and maybe a, a woman tells a man, I mean, I'm speaking very heterosexual terms at the moment, but you know, tells, tells, tells the guy, you know, I don't really like that. Or can you stop that? Or can you go slower or faster or whatever? That can be, you know, there can be a reaction to that. But I think the whole omming really helped or helps people. I don't know if it's still done a lot, but, you know, um, to learn that communication. So and then in the end also, what's interesting, you have this little, you wrap it up. Oh, God, it's, it's really been a while, <laughs> a few years of trying to remember all this. Um, you wrap it up and you give a very, kind of very sort of clinical, prescription of what you felt in your body at the time the stroker and the strokey like I felt this tingling in my left finger and then I felt this my ear was getting hot and my mouth was dry or whatever yeah so there's no yeah it's 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 so interesting and if you look at it from the from the culty side you could also say um are we you know are you are you decondition are you reprogramming yourself in some ways and is this a good thing or a bad thing? Are you trying to deliberately um, override or suppress something that you wouldn't that would normally come up, like you know, arousal or you know, expressing that or wanting to get closer or hook up? Are you are you learn you learning to suppress all that and only be in this on this clinical line, which seems very um, paradoxic to how you know we normally interact on that level within the society? You know, so you could even question that a little bit and say, what are, you know, is, is that a good thing that we're trying to push this into our system so then we get the result? Interesting, eh? It's so, it is really interesting. And I, you know, I do apologize for pressing you on, on your experience. It's just that I don't know anyone else who's been in this cult, even as a journalist, you know, so how else are we going to find out about it? It's still not boring in my life, you know, it's still going to be, have some boundaries. Not anymore. We, we own the rights to that one. If you buy the book, which everyone should do, we own the rights to every, everything that's ever happened in your life. But it is quite, um, it's quite Pavlovian, isn't it? Have talk about Pavlovian conditioning because you get to associate the cult with this, you know, the, the climax and this this amazing feeling and then you keep coming back to it you know absolutely and you know we've you've asked me before um about about center point and also you know when we talked about this how how fascinating it is when you can dive into something because you have a professional interest but you also have a personal interest in how these two things mix i mean in the in, with center point it that didn't go so well with me because i actually got too close and it really affected my my mental health at some stage, and I was I was overwhelmed. That she actually pulled back after two years from that quite, um, you know, traumatic research, really. And um, and and I also, you know, met a lot of uh, victims of that group twenty years later who had also been conditioned in some ways, and it really messed with them and their and their private lives. You know, there were a lot of a lot of former teenagers and kids who were asexual now, and some who who'd learned this, you know, that there was always something on tap, there was always touch on tap in the community. And when they went into the outside world, 
it didn't quite work like that. And it was awkward if they would just ask someone, oh, would you spoon me? You know, like they're, they're flatmates and they would go, oh, mm, that's a bit weird. Just do you want to lie down and they just spoon me or so? Do you know, there's this, yes, on the one hand, you can introduce new techniques or, or undo some old conditioning and maybe that's beneficial because it's been too restrictive before or you have, you know, but then when you're completely, if this becomes a new dogma and a new norm and, and you can't really integrate it with what you've, who you were before, what the outside world's doing, I think it then becomes, it can become like a, a, a prison almost that you're stuck in and it, it's probably then not, not beneficial for you and your, your, your relationship life anymore later on. I think that's a good segue then to Center Point because we've been speaking about one taste, of course, that's the one a lot of people know and from the Netflix documentary and that obviously, as you were saying, the FBI got involved in that and I think it's now a lot smaller. I think it still does exist though, um, just in case people want to go, you know, hang on, why do you stop talking about that? What happened to it? I mean, you can you can look up and, and see because I think it's all still ongoing as far as I know. I think it's mainly online, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's still it's online now. So that's what's happening there. But then Another big story in your book and in your life is Centerpoint, and it's a little bit lesser known. So tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, it's, it's lesser known because it, um, it doesn't exist anymore and it all happened before the internet. So it's not even something, um, you know, you could have Googled in the last um, 20, you know, years or 30 years after the, after the raids. And only since, you know, I started my, my research really and brought it back on the radar here in New Zealand, um, I didn't even know about it. So it was unmatched even on a global scale because of what happened there. Um, it was the the New Zealand appendix of the human potential movement. So their guru, Bert Porter, self-acclaimed therapist, but actually a pest control salesman, had gone to Essendon in California, and which was a pretty wild and wacky place at the time. And he learned, um, you know, he brought gestalt therapy and encounter groups and all these sort of new agey, radical, scream and cathartic therapies with him back to New Zealand. And New Zealand was a, a total backwater back then, especially in round therapy. You know, you could get counseling from the church and you could go to the doctor if you thought you had, you know, problems around orgasming or so. And that was it. So social services actually sent um, their people to, to Bert Potter when he first arrived back here on the scene again in New Zealand. He'd also been to Osho's, um, or back then, you know, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh Ashram in um in India, um, so I probably probably you know learned how to how to become a guru, or at least wanted to model some of that. I called himself God when he came back, and eventually they bought land and um, st started this really beautiful, largest intentional community in New Zealand. Um, that was yeah went for about twenty twenty odd years. Um, and a lot of people passed through there also. A lot of therapists and psychologists from Auckland and Auckland University at the time who probably wouldn't really want to be seen dead now that they've done this. And unfortunately, you know, sadly, what, what Centerpoint is only known for, you know, infamous for now is the, um, the terrible abuse, um, that happened with the children there. A third of them, according to a study, um, would have been likely sexually abused, but there was also neglect on a on a massive scale, and and yeah, if it's it's a even on a even on a global scale, it's an unmatched cult story, I would say. And the closest that comes to it is Otto Mühl in Austria, who was operating at the same time. This wild and crazy avant-garde artist, um, and they also had a commune where um, promiscuity was the norm and the dogma. So it was a fascinating um, story for me, uh, especially the aftermath, because I met 
a lot of the former children and teenagers, but also some of the parents still in denial about what had happened there. The teenagers, the former teenagers, one woman, um, I called her the girl in, my, girl in the caravan in my book because she'd barricaded herself in the caravan on the property center point at 11 years old. She, she arrived there at 10 years old, and this is when she was brought to the guru. And um, yeah, she later took him to court and some other men. And I was the first person, she was in her late 40s, I was the first person ever in her life she told her story to. It was massive. And it was also massive for me because it, it was a game changer. And I, 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 I was just so frustrated at that time, by that time, with the um, adults in denial, the people who, you know, the bystanders, the enablers, the apologists, you have them in every group, but I, I've met them all and some of them in my book and I've interviewed some of them who still trying to explain away what happened there, even though they were guilty. So that was pretty, um, not just shocking, it just, it just really rocked me. It, I've, I had so much compassion for, for the victims I've met and how they hadn't, justice hadn't been done for them, no matter whether some people had gone to jail or not. They... Their lives were broken. They have massive mental health problems. I met, you know, women who've been through prostitution, drug abuse, you name it. And then some of the former adults who'd had, you know, gotten a big payout to actually leave the community in the end so that the trust of the community could be, you know, the center point trust could be closed down. They were living a lavish life. And yeah, it, it was a labyrinth that I actually got lost in. And that was, um, psychologically really, really taxing. I really didn't, didn't realize how bad it would be when I, when I got myself into that. Yeah. So I learned my lesson about coming too close as a journalist. Yeah. Well, exactly. You, you, you speak of coming too close. That was going to be my next question. So coming too close to center point and how, how, in what capacity was that? I mean, were you, again, were you a journalist? What was it like for you? You were a young journalist at this point and uh, take me through going into center point for you. I mean, I wasn't that young, you know, it was, it was 10 years ago and I'm in my fifties, but hey, well, you know, young. in fact, I didn't feel like I was young because I mean, I wasn't young, but also, I mean, I had a lot of experience. I've, I've been working as a journalist since my twenties, since my early twenties, Andrew, and I thought I can do this. I've written three books before I went, I picked up this, the center point story as a book. Um, I, I didn't, I just didn't have that cult experience and I didn't have the experience of speaking with victims of that kind of abuse and their trauma. So, um, and I'm not schooled in that. I'm not a, you know, policewoman or a therapist or so. So I didn't, I, I didn't have anyone to process this with. I didn't have supervision. I didn't even have a team. I didn't even have a, an editor at the time at the publishing house because that person who signed me up, she was, she was let go a few months later, not because of me, but so I was completely, <laughs> yeah, I was completely on my own. I, I'd gotten myself in so deep and, you know, I thought, okay, I just, I just, tell this one woman's story and a bit of the background of this cult and that's a fest that's a book yeah? and then it got just bigger and bigger and bigger because everyone's story was tied in with someone else's story i had all the i got all the court files hundreds and hundreds of pages and worked through them and i mean just what i found in there but then also knowing a lot of these people didn't even want to talk to me or i couldn't mention them or just the legalities of it and the the contradictions and how I trusted someone and their story sounded really plausible or made sense. And then you meet someone else and they go, nah, that person was actually an abuser themselves. And so I was completely lost and overwhelmed. Plus, um, yeah, the vicarious trauma, which is I was actually diagnosed with later on with PTSD from just taking on too much. I was, that's almost like <laughs> someone gets into 
a cult. I was I was in a in a world that became my world, and there were it was, it was and there was nothing else, and only the people in there really understood. And I mean, looking back, it was almost as if I was in a cultic environment myself. I became part of their world, and it became my world. And the only people who really understood what I was going through were the victims, and they became my allies. And that's a really slippery slope for journalists, right? I mean, you get you have to come close, you have to collaborate, you 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 need to be compassionate and build trust and be genuine with this. Otherwise, you know, people can smell it a mile away that you're just using them for your for your story. But on the other hand, quite a way of professional head, right? And pull back and know this is the material which I have to work with later. And um, yeah, those those lines got got really blurred. I guess it makes for some good good reading in the book now. But back then it was it was almost I, I just couldn't see, you know, the forest for the trees at some point. And um I was really affected by by the trauma that I've picked up and that I've come across. And and my my inner so justice warrior wanted to see some justice done and some accountability. And I just maybe that's also a German thing, you know. I mean I grew up in a country where that's a really big topic, Vergangenheitsbewältigung, yeah, how to come to terms with the past. And that hadn't really been done with center point. And I mean it sounds a bit grandiose. I thought I could I could do that and I could bring that there. But um, it really grinded on me this this lack of accountability of people trying to brush that aside, what had happened, and finding having still having a narrative of oh yeah, those girls they all wanted that when they were in there. They all said yes, and it was only the social workers and the police later who turned a you know a lovely a loving thing. Lo- it was always loving a loving thing into something you know that's now seen as dirty and bad. And if you actually hear those you know meet those. The ones who who hate the word loving, who whose li- whose lives were destroyed, who played along being the concubine or the guru's mistress, yeah. Um, and and you know what was really going, and I think how can these other people not get it all these years later? I have some under, I have some empathy for you know people who were in the system at the time that they don't necessarily, that they can't always speak up, that they can't just leave. Yeah, who, who knows who I would have been in that kind of situation, which role I would have played, you know. And if, you, if we look at totalitarian systems and Nazi Germany and so on, there all these roles are in there. And it's always easy to, you know, to judge from the sidelines or afterwards say, oh, I would have been the, the rescuer. I would have been the hero. I would have been the Sophie Scholl of, you know, <laughs> whatever. But it's, it's probably not that, and who knows? You know, I can't. I, I don't know who I would have been. But twenty years later, when there's been enough that's come out, when these stories have been told, when the facts are on the table, and people are still in denial, that's where I, you know, it's where I, where I draw the line, and where I have a moral judgment. And that moral judgment, which I know we shouldn't, it shouldn't influence your journalism. You should just present the facts. But it was, it came through, and it, it, it I was on a bit of a mission, even a crusade, I think, and that backfired on me. Yeah. What what did the sort of cult leaders there think you were doing? Because were were you sort of falling into the cult yourself at all? Did you have any sort of sympathies for what they were teaching while also trying to expose the bad parts? All right, let's unpack that a bit. So um, at the time, I was also getting more and more involved with this um, neo-tantra or shamanic school called ISTA, International School of Temple Arts, where I had a attended a festival in Byron Bay where I mean I met them first and then started doing some courses. So um because of that, I think I had some sympathy for the people at Center Point because they, you know, 
open relationships wasn't a you know, weird topic for me anymore or, you know, self, you know, do, doing extreme workshops where you bang cushions and scream and let it all out. You know, those kind of new agey therapists, that was all part of what I was also just discovering at the time. I thought, oh, actually, that feels great. This gives me something. And so I wasn't so cynical or um, about why they were there in the first place. And also, I guess I had some skin in the game. At the time, I was really interested in in polyamory and it was a new, you know, new thing in my life that I wanted to explore. And then I thought, well, hang on, this was a community where that was actually the dogma. Um, what went wrong? How did it all end up in this, how did it all end in this collective um, nightmare um, where actually they had a utopian dream that's not, you know, it's not that far from my dream, you know, or what it was at the time at least. So that's, that's also where I, you know, where, where, I think it actually helped me in some ways because I wasn't seen as a Christian conservative coming in, just looking at the, who were the criminals. And, you know, I really try to understand why, why were the people there and what, you know, how, how, how did Centerpoint Miniature attract so many good people and middle class, educated doctors, lawyers, uh, nurses, teachers. Um, you know, that's, that's where I was coming from. And, I mean, the leader was dead by the time I started interviewing um, people. He died um, and he'd been in jail and he'd come out again, had Alzheimer's and he never apologized But Potter. But when he died, um, I think it's like a cloak came off a lot of the victim's shoulders. That's how they explained it to me. It suddenly helped them to speak up and must have brought something up for, you know, some of the, some of the ones I, I met and now they were ready to talk. And I met some of the well, people at the top, the thought police, yeah? some of the women, the lead therapists there who were seen as the thought police as bringing, um, you know, basically pushing some of the girls into the, the guru's arms and also um, just really blurring the lines with confidentiality and, you know, that they have this collateral on you and then Bird would hear about this later. A lot of the stuff that we now know from Nexium and other groups that definitely also happened, um, center point where a lot of you know, con confessional stuff that comes out in therapy can then be used against you later. And I met um, two of these top women. Um, one sat with me and cried and said she wanted to apologize to to Angie, who was the woman I'd met at the festival, the Commune Concubine, whom I who my research started with. Um, she pulled back the interview later, and I heard things about her there where I'm not quite sure whether was she playing me, was she trying to come across really remorseful because, uh, I don't know, you know, there's still so many layers and um, there's still families who are really affected um, by this. And where, you know, I know, I know one person who, a male, and because boys were also abused at Center One, it's a bit of an untold story that hasn't really been looked at enough. But, um, you know, one of these former boys in his 40s, and I met him you know, just a few years ago again, and he'd just gone completely off the rails with sex and drugs addiction, with huge addiction problems. And um, because he finally realized what had actually happened to him there, and he'd always stuck to his mother's narrative, who was a leader there in the community, that this is all good for him and nothing happened to him and, you know, and then the, the, the cracks really cracked and he had a breakdown in his late forties. So, you know, when I came into this whole center point story, it was, I was looking at the carnage and the, the late effects and the, the aftermath of, of a cult, how it, how it still affects 
paper, especially if it hasn't been processed. And unlike um, the Automyr commune in Austria, where you know people and former kids, they're also still suffering and processing and in therapy. But they started their Vergangenheitsbewältigung yeah, a lot earlier because there were documentaries, there were books. Um, there was even a public apology given from the um, first generation to the second generation. I think it was about 10 years ago or so, so or even earlier. Um, sorry, I would have to look at Yeah, there was even a public apology given to the former children from the first generation to the second generation. And that's really helped. And that's been missing with center point. So since, um, I don't know, my book never came out then, I actually had to stop the book after two years, gave up on that first round, and then wrote the making of for a New Zealand magazine for North and South, which felt like very little at the time. I mean, like the tip of the iceberg and like not really doing all my research justice, but it still had a role on effect. So two documentaries came out of this and a um, courageous woman here in Christchurch in my city, um, a doctor, a GP who'd been um, one of the children at Center Point only for a short time, but it's really affected her life and she'd never talked about it. She came forward um, sat here in my kitchen with me. We talked, we talked, and she wanted to do something. And I really encouraged her. And um, she started the Center Point Restoration Project, basically a project online for former, the former children to share their stories. And then a few years later, when the documentary came out, she was in the documentary, um, she and two other survivors wrote an open letter to the former adults of Centerpoint. You can find that letter online on the Centerpoint Restoration Project. It's really, really good. And it's taken a long time to see more signatures under that letter from the people who should be signing it. So it's still an ongoing process of the adults, you know, the former adults, the parents, Kenneth generation, to get their head around, to be honest, to come forward and say, yes, we want to acknowledge what has happened and we want to work with you, the children, on that. It's, they're, they're still not quite there yet, but it's it's in the making. Oh, wow. It's incredible. It's still going on. It's still an ongoing process. Um, one of the things I want to know about is uh, it's something I, I, I wonder about quite a lot. And maybe we can debate a little bit about it is this who goes into cults? Can anyone be in a cult? And I used to say like, oh, it can happen to anyone. And I think you're going to tell me that you're of that idea as well. But you, you, you let me know in a second. Um, but I... I'm no longer sure of that. And I think that might be just something that we say to be sort of apologetic to the victims of cults, you know, to show that we're not blaming them. And I don't think we should blame them. And I don't think it means that it's stupid people or clever people or anything like that. But I just think there's got to be something that, that makes some people join cults and not others. What do you think? So I'm not a cult expert. Um, I don't know the research actually on that. So my knowledge comes from my own observations and from talking to other experts about it or to people who, you know, who've been through it all. And so I agree with you. Um, everyone's susceptible. There is no profile. Um, it's more about having a, as, you know, Matthew Remsky says, um, a temporary situational vulnerability where at some point in your life, under certain circumstances, like a perfect storm, something can land. And I mean, if you look at the pandemic and how many people suddenly had this situational temporary vulnerability being, being, you know, in lockdown or being scared or being, you know, immune compromised and, you know, whatever, and then falling down rabbit holes or feeling high levels of anxiety and then suddenly being more susceptible to finding answers or, or, or finding a new community online where they're getting the connection and the answers. So that all makes sense. Or coming out of a, 
you know, having survived cancer or have, going through a divorce or changing jobs or midlife crisis, whatever that means, yeah. It, it's often those things. It's not necessarily, I think, a certain personality type. Saying that, though, I'd say it's certain qualities in people, and they're often the, the best ones in my books, is you know, being emotionally open, wanting to connect, um, enjoying community, being curious, um, wanting more from this life on earth than just you know, paying off the mortgage and watching sports and making more money. Yeah. So these are this. I would sign up for that. Yeah, I've, I, these are all things. These are all qualities. I think that are actually um, good qualities, and they're being they're being exploited. And this is why why this is so so sad and such a such a such an issue that we're talking about, because it's not um, it's not necessarily vulnerable people taking being taken for a ride. They get really vulnerable in through the cast. They're super vulnerable when they come out. It's a massive unrecognized public health issue, which I've actually just written about here for and using the magazine when they come out and there isn't enough support for them but it's not that they're broken in the first place because they end up in a cult yeah so ah okay here's another thought um if we had you know if if our society if our spiritual leaders whatever if if our world in general would offer more to fill the need for these things that we are looking for and that I've just described, you know, I think we'd be less prone to end up in these extreme versions of groups yeah, where we can be abused and manipulated and exploited. Uh, if, if it was more, you know, speaking about the whole, you know, the arming stuff and all the conscious sexuality stuff, uh, if we had a, if we had healthier or more natural or more, you know, ways to communicate about this, if it wasn't also suppressed and then, you know, if we didn't just have the two paradigms of either suppressing it or pornography and, you know, if, if, if it was more wholesome or however you want to call it, um, maybe there wouldn't be such a need if it wasn't such a taboo. If, if this whole topic wasn't so difficult and there wasn't so much hurt and shame and fear and suppressed desire and we could just deal with it in a, in a better way and we'd learn this at school and from our parents and, you know, we wouldn't end up in all these cults like One Taste or Center Point and so on. So, yeah, let's, let's change the world and we have less cults. <laughs> I guess I've got a bit of a cynical reading because I think you're right about, I, I, I agree with a lot of people, but there are also some people I think who join cults uh, because they want to feel more special than other people. And I think that's right. a very human thing in, you know, men and women, the status, you want to get to the, the hierarchy and status. Um, and so the, some of those people join cults. So even if you made everything more wholesome, some people would still want to have some of that status. Well, that's interesting. But do you think that's that they get in there, that they have that from the get-go? Or isn't it something that the cult brings out of them? And this is why a lot of them rise to the top in there, because it speaks to their power hunger or to, you know, suddenly feeling important mm. and having the knowledge and, you know, that, that sort of spiritual arrogance. And also, you know, then being a, suddenly a leader in an organization, whereas, you know, on the, in the, out, on the outside world, they're total, you know, nobody. But suddenly there's someone in their, in their little universe. Um, I mean, I, I, I tend to give, always give people the benefit of the doubt. So I'd say maybe we all have a bit of that in us, but a cult really can really bring it out in us. So yeah, maybe you know, people who don't even know that they want that, but that it, work, it works for them and they, you know, yeah. 
But it's hard, isn't it? Because we all want to be special, but you can't have eight billion special people. So I can see why that can drive people. I'm just saying that part is because I spent so long, I suppose, uh, when I was learning about cults and being very excited about it, and I wanted to be like, oh, let's hang on, let's be fair. I know everybody thinks that they're stupid, but they're not. Aha. And and that's true. But also, it doesn't mean that I, I don't want to always have to speak about people as if like I'm. I don't want to have to always be wary of like seeming like I'm victim blaming because I'm not blaming them, but it doesn't mean that uh, that every victim only has positive good traits. Sometimes they are the victims of their own uh, issues. Maybe. Don't you think it goes both ways a bit? Um, I mean, I'm holding workshops at the moment around the country, but also overseas soon, um, how not to start a cult. And it's basically a workshop or a, a little talk um, <sighs> about how to spot the red flags and groups and how to learn, you know, what... What, what are those dynamics and how can we nip them in the bud? Where can we spot them? And it's really important for me to find out it's, it goes both ways. We all have a tendency that we, we want to get with the program. We don't want to be the one to step out of the group. We want to be known. We want to be nice. We don't want to make a fuss. We don't want to be that one person in the back raising our hands and saying, no, actually, that, I didn't understand that. That actually, to me, sounds like mumbo-jumbo. Can you explain that again? Yeah. <laughs> so, and I mean, yeah. you're... you're you're a successful podcaster. I've got a bestseller now. I'm being invited for talks. You know, we're already a little bit on a pedestal. People give us credit for that. They might look up for us. You, you know, you might, you know, you might get some fangirling. I certainly do. And it's, it's lovely. It feels good. You know, after all these, you know, hard yards and all these years writing in, in seclusion and not even knowing if anyone will ever want to pick up a book like this and whether it makes any sense to anyone, it's, it feels very damn good to be recognized for sure, yeah, and to be sticking here with you on, you know, on this program. And it also means that we're getting used to being um, admired, maybe, or recognized, you know, or, or having some kind of status. And and when do you, you know, when is how how for how long is that okay? Or when do we need to take a step back and go, hang on, I'm just a mere mortal here. Yes, I've written a book, but it's not, you know, it's not everything. <laughs> and, uh, how do you how do you check on yourself? How do you check on yourself and keep that in in check? And so you know, in in those in these cutting dynamics, um, you know, you you you'd probably interview a sociologist on there. But in these cutting group dynamics, it's it's not just a one way street, right? Is is also we love to you know we love sports teams. We love to be on the team and cheer the leaders and you know. Wear the, you know, wear the scarf of the merchandise and, yeah, it's, it's kind of human nature yeah. as well. It's not being stupid, it's being human. Thank you, Anke Richter, for coming on the show. What a pleasure it was to talk to her. Everyone, do make sure to get hold of Cult Trip Inside the World of Coercion and Control. Fantastic book where she goes from cult to cult, often sex cults and sort of experiences the ins and outs of what's going on in there. As I say, plenty of big episodes are coming out in the coming weeks. Please do support the show on patreon.com slash andrewgold and leave a review on Apple uh, Podcasts because those are really helpful. Have a lovely day.